So I got to ask, and I probably know the answer, but it, is it morally and uh, unequivocally mm, wrong to get your mom to lie about not going to her company's Christmas party and feeding them the lie that she has amoebic dysentery so that she can go on a road trip to Portland, Oregon. I'll let you be the, I'll let you decide. (laughs) So it all started a long time ago on it. Well, it was just last Friday, actually, but I was, uh, up to my eyeballs in, uh, work as usual. And just running a frantic pace that day. Uh, Had to go up into Placerville, the foothills, uh, through Jackson, and then back down into Roseville, and then set out for Manteca, Modesto, Merced. And along the way, it was just one phone call after another. And it's just, it, well, uh, I uh, keep I, I I keep a pretty chaotic existence, and it's not by design. But nevertheless, I try and have fun with it. Oh, so yeah. Incidentally, sorry I missed your call, Mike. Shout out to Mike. I uh, uh, I was gonna I was gonna actually address this um, by text the other night when I, but I was, but I was, uh, microdosing mushrooms as well. And I thought it would be, um, a little, I don't know, maybe half a bubble off plum. If I were to just start texting people at quarter to two in the morning about how I missed their phone call. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, I did, I got, um, I went down to, um, I went down South. I had drop off in Modesto and Manteca Merced and I picked up my uh, my youngest while I was down there Audrey and she rode with me and we kind of she was with me when my Jetta the engine gave out on my uh Jetta uh if you recall in the la- and one of the pre it was the back in the September podcast one of the podcasts in September I kind of talked about how my my engine just finally gave up it just gave up the ghost and she was with me, and then it was a rough night for her. But she regaled me with stories of her uh, friends and her friends' boyfriends and her friends' boys' friends' ex-boyfriends. And and when I picked her up Friday night to go with me down to Merced, she just kind of picked up where we left off. It was great. And we had some laughs, and she's crazy, and it was fun. And we talked about Christmas and holidays and her birthday, which is coming up, and if she wanted to go to Oregon with me, and she did not, so we're still trying to entertain the notion of maybe camping out in a cemetery, and I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's, well, we'll see, but, so, I got in late Friday, about 10.30, and then I was exhausted. And then um, my producer daughter, uh, she's dealing with some health issues, and she was in the hospital. She called, and I missed that call. So, like I said, it was calls all day. And I'm if I, I'm sorry I missed everybody's call if I didn't get to you. But um, Saturday was, uh, well, just when you thought you had a day of recovery, mm, you don't. So, I got done early enough from work and I came came back and made some pasta and I indulged in some of my bread and I was waiting for my lady to get my lady was down checking on on Vanessa and um, she got in late she ended up getting in about mm, a little after nine and then she wanted I we were considering doing some, uh, taking a few little mushrooms, 
But I thought it was kind of, I thought we'd lost our window of opportunity. Well, lo and behold, I was incorrect. And so I, uh, I was going to sit, I was going to sit out this round. I was going to, you know, I was going to, um, take a knee on this one, but at the very last minute, I thought, nah, you know what? I'll just do a little, I'm going to do the microdose. I'm going to, I'm going to grind it up into the powder so that I can just feel like just the ethereality of it all. Instead of just, instead of going, getting shot out of a cannon, you know, I would just kind of ease into it. So the buildup uh, while waiting for my lady to get back anyway, where I, I occupied my time kind of prepping for my trip up to Portland. I'm going, I'm leaving uh, Saturday. Uh, my 19 year old is coming up from school in Southern California. And then she'll be up Friday and then she's going to meet me Saturday. We're taking off. So I did some groundwork, a little research. And I started, well, first I, I started looking up, I wanted to learn more about this guy, Wiley Dufresne. And I didn't, uh, I was kind of in the dark about him and I'd heard his name mentioned, um, when talking to like Anthony Bourdain and some of his lectures and talks and, you know, Google talk interview slash lecture chat sessions, he, uh, there was, there was a couple names that he'd, that he'd brought up that were uh, kind of, um, they were kind, there were names that were um, kind of overlooked as far as like, in regard to like chef's table type stuff, exposés, um, conspicuously absent, I guess is the right phrase. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get a, a cool, clean little documentary style you know backstory on two names that Bourdain brings up one is Jeremiah Tower which first of all that's a badass name Jeremiah Tower was uh, the chef at Chez Panisse in Berkeley back in 72 he started there and he is a one of the first to, re to really kind of ch push the envelope of gastronomics you know and just uh Understand why, you know, if you cook an egg a certain way in boiling water, but if you, you know, you understand the chemistry of something um, and it's, it's, uh, it's manipulated chemically, that it can produce a different result, which is, which uh, kind of, I don't know, it seems like it takes away from the French cuisine, but even though they're all French, classically French trained American chefs, um, they also dabble in the chemistry and the the alchemy of it all. So, but the other name that he that he would say was, uh, you know, a lot of people weren't, wouldn't be here today if it weren't for uh, this guy Wiley Dufresne. And I'm like Wiley, that's a that's an even cooler name. So, so I did a little groundwork, did a little research, listened to some interviews, listened to some biographical stuff on him, and. He is a, he's a very interesting guy. He is, he, his first restaurant was, it's called, it was called 71 Clinton, which is the address in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, where the restaurant was, where, which was basically like a crack house environment that, uh, specifically speaking, uh, the chef David Chang, the Korean chef, he made a note of saying that he had actually stepped on a crack pipe getting to the restaurant and uh, the first night of its opening. Matter of fact, uh, according to Wiley Dufresne, Wiley has, he still has that broken crack pipe as a memento for the first night that David Chang came in to dine there. But it was this kind of groundbreaking place in kind of a bombed out, demilitarized zone, kind of a scary little neck of the woods but it was this high-end cooking but in and and initially it was it was rough going it wasn't easy it was uh, a lot of empty tables on on nights not selling out but doing experimental stuff and, and getting that kind of feedback from reviewers like oh it's he's over intellectualizing everything he's he's being too conceptual blah 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 
but he stuck with it and he followed his dream and or he stuck with his 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 uh, agenda and it, it panned out for him and he made an interesting um comparison as far as your uh when he went and he opened a second restaurant WD50 which was a clever name um uh, he's got this kind of hipster persona he's got these lamb chop sideburns which I've adopted I've decided to call them my Wileys my Wiley Dufresnes I shaved my beard and just left the chops but he's kind of a hipster guy he's one of these guys that he bikes to work in Brooklyn which is where his second restaurant is uh and he's usually got some kind of I don't know. He's a he's a hip dude, but you know he's a badass. And but he made an interesting comment. He said your second restaurant's kind of like um, kind of like um, a director's second film or a, a writer's second novel. It's the proving ground. It's like showing that the first one wasn't a fluke, and that's very much the case. So WD fifty, uh, by all intents and purposes, became quite the place to be at. And, uh, but ultimately it was, uh, in, in the context of change and constant evolution, he was, he became the victim of his own constant change and evolution when, uh, gentrific, these, these scumbag real estate gentrification types bought the building that his restaurant was in, uh, at a record auction price. And he ended up, uh, closing up shop because of that because I you know that was it I mean he wasn't going to renew his lease and uh, he was going to move on to greener pastures well what are those greener pastures I'll tell you what they are he interestingly enough now this is again this is a guy this is a gastronome this is a guy this is one of those intense cook chef experimenter types that blends a little bit of physics and chemistry and alchemy and mom's cooking and French cuisine and uh kind of cutting edge, kind of, uh, you know, that whole, uh, again, I hate using that expression, the farm to table, but that straight, just knowing, tasting the, tasting where the food's coming from, recognizing the soil. And so when he shuttered everything down, he kind of, it, it looks as though he's kind of, he kind of consolidated, consolidated everything into his latest manifestation uh, a few years back, a few years ago, called uh, Dew's Donuts, D-U, Dew's Donuts, like Wiley Dufresne's Donuts. He opened a donuts shop in Brooklyn. I thought, well, what the hell? That's wild. Like, you go from, like, a gastronome chef to essentially, like, a cutting-edge baker. But what's cool is the conceptual essence behind it, I get. Because in essence, he's got these, uh, you got some crazy, um, they're like, uh, some real out of the box type donut combination flavors, you know, some going with, um, well, let's see, uh, let's see, I was looking at this the other day, let's see, dudes. Do's donuts. Where are you? Do's donuts and their menu. And and he's got. Let's see. Ba ba ba. Their cake and yeast donuts. And. Uh, Let me see. Yeast donut, cake donut. Today's flavors: pomegranate dark chocolate, whoa, cream sickle, cin cinnamon apple sugar, cherry cheesecake, brown butter, key lime. So these are yeah, they're 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 again off the beaten path, just like this guy Wiley Dufresne. And so I thought that was a remarkable transition to go, uh, yeah, from this full-scale gastronome kitchen to a baker. And I thought that's really, it's kind of cool. It kind of lends a little more creed to the idea of the baker itself and being uh, something that you can, you know, use that skill set. 
and uh, expand on that skill set and uh, push the boundaries of that skill set. And it, and, it, and it spoke to me personally because of my new forays into baking and making bread, and uh, which I did the other night again. I made another loaf and it turned out even better. And it's just, I don't know what's going on. I'm just channeling, you know, the yeast gods here. So, um, so then after kind of geeking, geeking out on, on that, then I started looking at, I made the obvious transition into, um, voodoo donuts up in Portland. Cause I didn't realize this, but okay. I still, the first video I looked at as far as kind of getting a lay of the land. And I know, I, I know Portland, I'm familiar with Portland, kind of. But I found this video of this guy, and he's, he, he, he was kind of, he's a young kid, and he's got his girlfriend, and it's kind of like, it's not that great, but it was a good expose on just the area, because basically this kid landed, and there's like 670 views on this video, it's like eight years, or four years old, or five, six years, or something, it's a few years old, he's got 600 views, he's doing the best he can, but, uh, but he uh, basically uh, landed in Portland, and the first place he stopped at was the Pioneer Courthouse area, which is where I'm basically, basically, when I booked our hotel, I made the mistake, I made a mistake, I thought I was booking one place, I ended up booking another, and I'm, I'm over at the Embassy Suites, I'm going to be at the Embassy Suites, and in the hotel restaurant is going to be a place called Mother's Bistro and Bar. So this kid lands, he goes to Pioneer Courthouse, and the first place he goes to to get a bite to eat because he's been, he hasn't eaten is Mother's Bistro Bar. I'm like, what the fuck? So I had to double check. I had to look, I had to go to my Priceline app and say, well, that's seen, that sounds familiar. Why does that sound so familiar? And sure enough, the summary of Embassy Suites shows Mother's Bistro Bar, which you walk directly outside, you've got Stumptown brew which is the coffee joint a famous coffee joint that's right across the street and then caddy corner to that is the voodoo donuts i'm like son of a bitch well right there in the epicenter and it's kind of in the old town end of town like in some kind of rough areas even though there's like the NBC suites but it's and then the high end what looks to be high end kind of eateries and bistros and so forth are kind of an amalgam or a combination or a conglomeration of kind of the dirty end of town old town melding with uh the hipster element so i think they like to keep it dank and dirty like that and fair enough okay so we're gonna be wading through some crack pipes and uh some uh goofy people and i'm ready man to go check out voodoo donuts the lines out the door usually it's got uh some gnarly just some gnarly like they used to make like nyquil donuts uh pepto-bismol donuts just uh the cock and balls is a good it's like it's shaped like a big cock and balls and there's cream in the middle so yeah it's a shocker but then the kid, after he went to Voodoo Donuts, he went over to check out the Portland Stag sign, which is just around the corner, or down the road, actually. But he also, uh, the other thing that he focused in on and checked out was, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, the there's a big mural that says, uh, Keep Portland Weird. And I'm like, I've seen that before. And that's, it's all in this cluster. It's all kind of by some kind of divine design that I ended up there and that's where we're going to be so we're going to see the scummy end of Portland and we're going to keep it weird just like old Hunter S. Thompson says uh, you know when the going gets weird the weird turn pro so but speaking of you know getting weird turning weird and uh, weirding it out so my lady finally rolled in Saturday night about nine a little after nine, she's like, it's go time, mushroom time. I'm like, what? Oh my God. Oh Jesus. So, so I ended up indulging. I said, okay, I, you know what? I'll, I'll do the, uh, I'll microdose with you. I'll kind of, I'll be like your, uh, eth- ethereal henchman, uh, and your caregiver and, en- 
and San, your Sancho Panza to your to your Don Quixote, and and I fucked up again. You know, even though it was microdosing, it's like, oh shit! The minute I took them, like this is gonna be another one of those nights, <laughs> and I was so tired. I was so fucking tired from Friday. You know, and just phone calls and Audrey just talking, just literally, like literally picking up where we left off from when I broke down two months ago. <laughs> it was it two? Has it been two months ago? Almost, month and a half, whatever. And I'm like, fuck it. So buckle up, man, because I, you know I just kind of, um, I didn't get kind of launched into the stratosphere. I will say that. But I was on, I mean, it wasn't, there was no, you know, gracefully just nodding off. It was just like, all right, bitch, I tricked you again. (laughs) I'm like, motherfucker. You know, it's like micro, I guess my feeble attempt at microdosing is like, it's like a, it's like a little feral little kitten that you find, you know, he looks harmless, but you pick it up and that little fucker just starts slashing the shit out of you. Like. Like this white cat we had up in uh, Humboldt, uh, we named Tunsis. He was, he was a, he was a, he was an albino cat that was deaf, and he had fleas. And every time you tried to give him a bath, it would just be, it'd be like a bloodletting. But he was harmless, a little tiny guy, just a little harmless. I got him because I was, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to, well, you know, there was a girl involved, and she's like, oh, how cute. Next thing I know, we have a white cat. Well, I was stuck with this cat. And he, it was just a slasher fest. It was just like a slasher movie. Every time he went to go, you know, wash the fleas off this poor little cat. So was, we called him Toonses because he was named after the the cat on the Saturday Night Live skit, Toonses, the driving cat, who doesn't drive very well. So he's Toonses, the driving cat, but he doesn't drive very well and he crashes. So, um, so yeah, it's like that seeming... Those, that micro dose of, of mushrooms is just like that. It's like that, uh, like that s- little seemingly harmless kitten that just playfully swipes at you when you pick it up. Just drawing blood, that little fucker. So there I am. Find him. I, you know, next thing I know, it's like three a.m. and I'm listening to CCR, and I'm really getting into the lyrics of "Fortunate Son." First of all, the 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 guitar, the 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 riff, the guitar riff. Some folks are born, waved away the flag. Ooh, that red, white, and blue. It's like a, it's like a patriotic, not non-patriotic song. It's so good because it's about, you know, it ain't me, it ain't me. I ain't no fortunate son. I ain't no senator's son. So it's talking about how, how all the politicians' kids are protected from getting sent to Vietnam, you know, but not him because he's not a fortunate son, but he's like you. I thought to myself while I'm on mushrooms, I'm thinking to myself, this is about the troops, you know, how these poor kids, you know, these kids from, you know, just trying to get out of a small town situation somewhere, you know, just wanting to do better or something or just get out of some mess that they're in. And all of a sudden they're in Vietnam, you know, and they're not for, it's not fortunate, but they're doing it for their country, you know, and they, you know, and it's like a sympathetic song, you know, it's like he's, he's, it's a a song for the troops, but it just shows the hypocrisy of just our, how our leaders send us to war for, you know, it's like, it's a double standard, like, you know, the senator's son who's, you know, protected, like, you know, like, like Hunter Biden or something like that, you know, just, just, just shielded from any, reality of being an American, you know, and doing their duty. And that poor, you know, not the the unfortunate sons sitting in that helicopter about ready to land in a rice paddy. So, I don't know. You start you start thinking some narc some weird shit, man, when you're on mushrooms, but but it's all good. So nevertheless. So I but I I really wanted to talk more so about well in relation to things getting weird 
I wanted to talk about the king of the weirdos, really. This was something I had laid out earlier in the week. I was really going to just go on a whole rant about Hunter S. Thompson. And in 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 the in in an attempt to keep it weird, he is the he is the king of the freaks, you know, he's you know, he never advocates, you know, drugs or insanity or violence to anyone, but it always seems to work for him and you find yourself just kind of inexplicably uh drawn into him or I found myself accidentally kind of this is like this podcast is really just kind of an audio column in my opinion it's kind of about poking at the world figuring out what makes it tick talking about stuff kind of getting stuff off your chest you know find out what what probing people's heads minds you know Thinkers, cooks, chefs, comics, comedians, car salesmen, writers, authors, directors, creatives, weirdos. But but the one interesting common thread that I found amongst it all, because I've, you know, I've been fascinated by Hunter S. Thompson since, virtually since, almost like high school or maybe my, no, maybe my first year of college. I saw he had a, he had a book come out called, uh, was it song songs for the dooms or song of the doom. It was kind of, it was later, some later political writings, which in the early nineties, he was, let's see, he would have been late fifties, but he was, kind of at the nadir of his powers, you know, his his literary powers, because he was the mind that this guy had, you know, and the capacity, because this was a guy that took a lot of acid, took a lot of mushrooms, took a lot of mescaline, a lot of cocaine, a lot of alcohol. But deep down, he's a hippie. He is a hippie. He's just a gun-toting hippie. Um, I mean, the greatest book he wrote, and there's a lot, he's written some great ones, but the greatest of all was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is, uh, in essence, it's about the end of the 60s. Or It was, kind of, it was serialized in Rolling Stone in the 70s, and uh, it, it came out in sections when Rolling Stone was still um, a paper circulation like a newspaper type circulation before it became a magazine and um so he was really into the hippie scene i mean so much so like he hung out with ken kesey and um the merry pranksters when tom wolf was embedded with them he knew tom wolf tom wolf knew him at the time hunter s thompson was writing uh the book hell's angels and he was one of the first to you know he he created this style of writing called the gonzo style it was um basically it started with an article he had written for a, um, a circulation called scanlon's monthly Way back in the day, it's not. I don't think it's even in existence anymore. But he did a feature on the Kentucky Derby, and it was called uh, "The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved." <laughs> and he's from Louisville. Like he is, he knows Kentucky. He knows mint juleps. He knows everything about it. So he was, he went there to do a story on a uh, more sports-related story about the race itself but he got he, he i think he ended up taking acid him and um ralph steadman the the artist who met him there to do the artwork for the piece uh they either got drunk or they got or they just they just took a lot of acid and just tripped out on the people there which is where he got the inspiration that they basically the story was the people that were there and their fucked up hats and their decadent 
depraved setting and uh, and that insular bubble that they all kind of traverse in. And so they he became the story circulating in and amongst these people. And uh, so it kind of turned turned the world of journalism in on itself and made the writer the story as, far, as opposed to the story itself or the subject itself the writer became the story and it was a new form nobody had ever really done that and, and no and then and, and he took it even further with when he rode with the hell's angels and, and was embedded with the hell's angels and when they found out he was writing a book and that he was going to profit from the whole experience they stomped him I mean, they beat him up pretty good, um, but he that's that was his that was his deal. Like he just he rode hard. I mean, he always said like the only people that really know where the edge is are the people that went that go over it. You know, you know he he was he was he was always looking for that edge, just getting just creeping up to the edge of it. Uh, another good example is uh, the Rumble in the Jungle, the Ali Foreman bout. In Zaire, which is now the Republic of Congo, he went out there to cover it. And he was so distraught at the notion of the prospect of seeing Ali get beat, he couldn't accept. So he just, I think he just took, he just smoked hash and floated in the pool instead of going to the fight. Where Ali ended up beating Foreman and just blew his mind. But he just spent the whole fight floating in a pool high on a uh, high on hash and so he in essence he becomes the story fear and loathing in las vegas he is the story him and oscar zeta acosta who uh, they call the brown buffalo his lawyer the, it was all real i mean if you read the book it's one of the funniest motherfucking books ever and it's all it, it looks to be all, it's all true it's it's non-fiction and it's there's a lot of acid there's a sheriff's convention. There's there's a, a a girl in a hotel room who's drawing abs- just bizarre portraits of Barbara Streisand. It's the most insane and uh, deliberate insanity trip that has ever been captured on paper and ink. And yeah, he's the king of the weirdos. And uh but it's just because he likes he's kind of like that blend of like the he's he would probably be like the 70s version of say like a hipster before they were hipsters because now it's like that convergence of hippiness and redneck that combined to sh- to have this weird hipster version which is what it he in essence is he likes the hippie lifestyle he likes the hippies he likes the hippie music you know, his favorite song, one of his favorite songs is Mr. Tambourine Man with Bob Dylan. And, uh, but he would, you know, take a lot of acid. He'd fire a lot of guns. You know, never malicious. And, uh, yeah, he was one of a kind. And so I'm going to break this up into two parts. I got to, I got to run. I got to do some stuff. I got to pick up some COVID stuff and I'm going down to Oakland. So I will be. So, getting back on track here after I was so rudely interrupted by work again, I, uh, in essence, I became kind of um, fascinated by this guy, this writer, Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter Stockton Thompson, who was, uh, I think he was uh, in jail when he was supposed to be graduating from high school because of a fight or something he got into. And in lieu of uh, some other disciplinary action, I think he was offered the option to join the uh, Air Force. So he he did so and uh, was immediately pegged as uh, incorrigible and untrainable uh, and uh, not very disciplined. And so I think he became a, a writer in the air force out of just kind of, uh, well, survival or just, um, inadvertent 
kind of uh, willful, uh, I don't know, just not wanting to be a statistic, I'm sure, naturally. So he, that's kind of where he garnered his, or the beginning, the early embers of his uh, writing, um, you know, his inspiration or his, the beginnings of it all. And which blossomed into uh, becoming, he took some jobs after he uh, got out of the Air Force for some strange uh, publications like El Sportivo, which is a which was a bowling magazine in Puerto Rico, but just jobs where he could just, uh, well, apply his craft or what he thought would be his craft or what he was turning into his craft and then he I believe he was a copywriter in New York for a magazine or a newspaper he would but he would subsequently get fired you know here and there naturally uh, for incorrigible behavior and uh, which seemed to start a pattern in his life which I get uh, and this is something you can kind of see in this guy too you know and once he decided, I think, to be a novelist, he, like so many others, uh, he took on this kind of uh, mimicry as worship or flattery in the guise of wanting to be a great novelist and then, and then actually doing exercises in the form of, say, like writing word for word the great Gatsby or writing word for word, old man in the sea, you know, following his greats, trying to see what it is, what it's like to write like a great novelist, like Hemingway or F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, uh, he write entire, you know, entire replicas of novels, which is a fascinating, that's kind of an obsessive single-minded nature that, well, doesn't necessarily come from an irascible type like that. So, so the genesis of his, uh, uh creativity, kind of probably started there in some form or another because mimicry is I think the one of the highest forms of flattery Uh, you know I've over the years I've read and seen and listened to interviews about people that you know through secondhand knowledge you hear people talk about other people as like for example like like my buddy Jonathan I think he once told me like that David Bowie kind of secretly wanted to be Iggy Pop. And uh, Ziggy Stardust was kind of a manifestation of that, you know. Just the uh, the parallels or the, um, well, this, just the nature of the time, you know. And Iggy, or Ziggy wanted to be Iggy, right? You know, obviously. Jim Carrey wanted to be Andy Kaufman. I mean, Jim Carrey was obsessed with Andy Kaufman. I mean, Andy Kaufman was just... Uh, that was something else. Um, that was... But you could... You can kind of see in, you know, the movie Man on the Moon and then subsequent, like, bio-narratives about his obsession with this guy, Andy Kaufman. And I'll, and I'll talk about Andy Kaufman. Like, that. that's a whole other episode in itself. But, you know, and, and over the years you hear about, like... Like Sean Penn secretly wanted to be Mickey Rourke, you know, but he, but, but Sean Penn became so much greater, I think, or as great, maybe on a different parallel, you know, in that realm and just examples like that. So Hunter S. Thompson wanted to be Hemingway. He wanted to be F. Scott Fitzgerald, kind of these bold, bigger than life characters that had these, well, tragic endings, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald drank himself to death. Hemingway stuck a gun in his mouth in Ketchum, Idaho, and but uh, and and in so doing, when Thompson created this myth around himself, which tends to I you know he it seems like he um, he did create the myth deliberately, but at the same time he was the myth like his writing. You know, this gonzo journalism thing was exactly that. The writer became the story. Tom Wolfe was part of the story in Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, you know. Um, These embedded journalists, Bill Buford is the story in the book Dirt, you know, about French cuisine. Um, 
You know, Jeff Gordon here was not the story, but an element of the story. He was in, in the story, you know, it, as opposed to like prior to the 60s, you know, the story was just the story, you know, the, you know, man landed on the moon, you know, this happened, you know, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the, you know, the you know, storming the beaches of North, you know, stuff like that happened. But in today's day and age, you know, now guys like Sebastian Younger are now in the firing line with these guys in Restrepo and, you know, uh, Sarajevo in Syria, in Afghanistan, you know, they're part of the action. You know, these great journalists doing their, you know, risking their neck. It's, it's, um, it didn't start with Thompson, but Thompson, Thompson blew it up and, you know, he set the groundwork for it, set the template for it, maybe. Or was one of the small handful of journalists that kind of started that, you know. But but it takes great writing to also to catch the imagination to spearhead some kind of movement. And, uh, you know, again, I don't think he was like... He didn't say, I'm going to start this movement and then did it. It just happened. It just kind of took an organic form. And he was in the right place at the right time when he came out with his first book, Hell's Angels. That was a... That was a great book. That's a great book. But it wasn't his style either. His style, he didn't find his style until Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which was brilliant. Just, I mean, just uh, talking about, you know, being in the depths of an acid binge where, you know, you know, you, you know, <laughs> you, like a line from the book is like, like, you know, you're in the depths of an acid binge when you see your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth. I mean, that's fucking, <laughs> who says that? Who thinks that? Unless it really happened. Maybe and it, it probably did. Um, you know, other, other, you know, but the, but then the eloquence of some lines in the book, you know, talking about the end of the sixties and how he talks about the high watermark where the wave made it all the way up. And then you could see where the watermark, where it broke, you know, and came back and receded, you know, where they almost made it. You know, the 60s almost made it. But then, you know, dark, dark people, dark figures like Nixon, you know, just kind of in Vietnam kind of just ended it and just brought us back to this dark, gross reality, which is what fear and loathing in Las Vegas shines a light on. And then and then as a political journalist, when he wrote fear and loathing on the campaign trail, the 72 uh, Nixon reelection that's fucking great. I mean, that is talk about embedded journalism, great political objective journalism with hyperbolic style and brilliant, funny, funny writing, you know, talk about Ed Muskie, you know, being high on Ibogaine. Nobody even knew what Ibogaine was. Even now today, it's still, you know, you have to know your shit to be talking about Ibogaine, you know, and he's telling you know, he's writing a novel about one of the political candidates of the 72 election taking Ibogaine treatments. And it's just classic. It's hilarious. But so he became this iconic figure. And, and then in so doing, the mimicry came in the form of people now being influenced by him. So they started making movies about him, Where the Buffalo Roam with Bill Murray. Bill Murray kind of became Hunter S. Thompson. He was obsessed. Like even when, you know, this was in 1980, 81, 82, when Bill Murray was kind of at the height of his Saturday Night Live influence and power, he got into a weird phase where, you know, he thought he was Hunter S. Thompson. He acted like Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson was hanging out at, at you know, studio... Uh, the studios of Saturday Night Live. And because, uh, you know, he was an irascible character like Bill Murray and Bill Murray was an irascible character like Hunter S. Thompson and John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, these kind of rough guys that were also brilliant writers and thinkers and performers. But, and then, you know, present day, more present day, you know, fast forward to you know, the making of the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I thought was good. But it just doesn't come anywhere near like 
the descriptive powers of the book itself. But Johnny Depp kind of took on, again, this Hunter S. Thompson persona. Like, all of a sudden, like, the the mimicry now is on him. Like, they're trying to be him. People want to be him. It kind of overlapped into these, now these present-day writers that <clears throat> guys like, you know, ex-Rolling Stone writer Max Ta- uh, Matt Taibbi, who writes for Substack now, is that he's, he knows the brilliance of Thompson. He can't, people don't, they don't want to, when you know kind of the regimen that this guy went through, Thompson would basically take Coke all day, all night, drink wild turkey and just eat grapefruit and eggs Benedict and smoke weed and take acid and shoot guns and but write brilliant and just was at the height of his power. No person can really withstand that kind of rigorous endeavor on a consistent basis like like he did and present day writers know that and that you're going down a real dangerous road like Thompson said there's only you know the only people that know where the edge is in life are the people that go over it and uh so ultimately he ended up the way his heroes ended up he stuck a gun in his mouth quite deliberately in uh Woody Creek Colorado in his cabin just outside Aspen and you know, he went the way of his heroes. But this is a guy that was, um, I don't know. If you think he kind of set out deliberately to lead a crazy life, there could there's some truth to that. But you kind of get sucked into this vortex as well. Like, you, the powers of belief, you know, like if you, if you will it to happen too, you're like, you know, I'd like to live a fascinating life. And then the universe just facilitates that for you much to the same degree. Like, you know, I, I, uh, I court, I court a lot of those situations where I'm thinking like, how interesting would it be if I just fucking got a fire extinguisher and just start blasting in this room? And sometimes you do, sometimes you just, you take that step and then that's, that's when the universe opens up for you and starts giving you opportunities to just, (laughs) be who you uh, manifest yourself to be so <clears throat> but uh, yeah it's uh he's a fascinating character i could talk about him all day um he, he was tr- people still talk i mean joe rogan talks about him all the time he's got a letter of hunter s thompson's that he you know uh that he he didn't write to Rogan. He'd written, and and I don't know how Rogan got a hold of it, but he's got it framed up in his wall. I mean, he's a hero. Anthony Bourdain. He grew up reading Hunter S. Thompson. He wanted to be Hunter S. Thompson. He wanted to be this crazy bastard that could write and lead these crazy adventures and weird, <clears throat> you know, encounters in uh, the Congo and Zaire and, uh, you know, the Kentucky, the Kentucky Derby and just lead this weird, strange, depraved life and uh and write about it and uh and he went the way of his hero too you know it's bizarre it's like uh there's a tremendous amount going on there there's a lot of ego involved um a lot of fun a lot of crazy situations you know i think i remember reading about the time like i think <clears throat> the night before like the america's cup race for for, for sailing out in uh one of the East Coast ports, Thompson was out in the marina trying to spray paint "fuck the Pope" on one of the yachts or something. I don't think he, I don't think he pulled it off, but just shit like that, you know. Those those people are the, they're the outlaws of the world, and they're, they're fascinating. And it's a tragic ending most of the time. Um, but uh, it's the stories. It's in the end, it's the stories. You know, it's like Bill Murray said in in Stripes when they're all introducing each other in the barracks with Warren Oates and Psycho and John Candy and Harold Ramis, he's like, you know, he goes, the reason I, you know, lose out on women to guys like you is it's the stories, man. It's the stories. And he looks over at one of the other guys. He's like, Lee Harvey, you are a madman. When your buddy stole that, that whore, that cow and your friend tried to make it with the cow. I want to party with you, man. Like, that's what, you know, I don't know. That's, that's, that's life sometimes. It's funny. It's fun. It's funny. You know, talking about, I mean, 
the time that Bill Murray was probably doing research for the movie, probably for where the Buffalo roam, which is a great movie. Actually, if you, if you watch it, 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 uh, it, it's a loose adaptation of kind of his encounters on the campaign trail in 72 when he was writing fear and loathing on the campaign trail. And there was a time where he, he was hanging out with Thompson by a pool, like probably the Beverly Hills hotel or some hotel. And they were trying to out Houdini each other. And so they, they, they basically fastened Bill Murray's wrists to a lawn chair and threw and and Thompson threw him in the pool because he was going to, you know, break out. And he didn't, he couldn't. (laughs) He didn't. So Thompson just reached in and, and, you know, Murray was kind of on an eight, eight or nine count. He was like, okay, I'm, this is about it for me. And Thompson just reaches in and just, you know, probably a glass of wild turkey in one hand and he reaches into the pool and just yanks the chair out and saves his life. You know, just shit like that, you know, doing research, just staying up all night, drinking NyQuil martinis, NyQuil margaritas, just shit like that. It's just, uh, it's the stories. It's, but there's usually a heavy toll to pay but yeah, fascinating character that guy. Um, can't say you know enough about. I mean, I've read enough about him. I've, I, 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 I know this character inside and out, and uh, it's a cautionary tale, but it's a very exciting one. So that you know, it's a fine line when you're um, gobbling mushrooms at uh, nine twenty on a Saturday night when. What you really need is a little sleep. <laughs> so I got off track there. But anyway, I started the whole uh, the whole episode here trying to convince my mom to call into work to tell them that she had amoebic dysentery so she could go on a road trip with uh, my daughter and I up to Portland. And that plan didn't go as, 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 uh, as well as I thought it would. So it's just going to be me and my daughter and... Um, Again, I'll keep you guys posted. It's going to get a little weird, I'm sure, up in Portland, as is the as is the lay of the land. But I'm looking forward to it. Going to check out some crazy-ass, weird, uh, suggestive donuts and uh, look at the weirdos of Portland, myself included, blend in with the locals, and uh, see what comes of it. But uh, at this point, I'm going to sign off. I hope you guys have a great week. And uh, I'm sure I've I'm sure I've overlooked some stuff, but I will keep you posted. And until then, I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies.